This episode is brought to you by Northern Rural Supplies. The team you know and love from Landmark Broome are now operating as Northern Rural Supplies. It's business as usual with the same team, same phone number and same location. The only thing they've changed is the colour of their shirts, which is now blue if you were wondering. Northern Rural Supplies proudly service the Kimberley and Pilbara regions, specialising in livestock sales, real estate, animal health and management, fencing, fertiliser, water and all other requirements. They stock your everyday needs to feed your dogs, cats, horses, chooks, camels and even goats. The whole team is based in Broome, so make sure you give them a call for all your agricultural and semi-rural needs. Central Station Podcast, where we bring you stories of what life in the outback is really like and why many wouldn't live anywhere else. So pull up a stump, pop the billy on, or crack a cold one, as we talk to the men and women who call some of the most remote parts of Australia home. My name is Steph Coombs. I'm the editor of the Central Station website and host of this podcast. In today's episode, I'm sitting down with a team behind the Catherine Outback Experience. Catherine Outback Experience celebrates life in the outback through real horse starting and working dog demonstrations entwined with live music and humorous bush tales. It is owned by multiple Golden Guitar winner and horseman extraordinaire Tom Curtin and his wife Annabelle. As they like to say, Tom trains the animals and Annabelle trains Tom. I met Annabelle near on 10 years ago when we were on the WA Young Farmers Council together. In the past five years, I've seen her fall in love with a guitar playing, horse starting, dog training cowboy, and leave her corporate life as an urban planner in Perth to move to the Northern Territory. In our chat, Tom and Annabelle share the story of how they came to be, what Catherine Outback experience is all about, and what's on the cards for Tom's musical career. Just a quick heads up, guys. This was the first podcast that we ever recorded for Central Station. Um, and I was definitely still learning how to use the microphone and the rules of recording things. So it's going to be a little bit echoey as we were in a tiled room. Ideally, we would have a nice recording studio with padded walls. But as anybody who's been out in a station knows, that's just not going to happen. So perhaps in future, we will surround ourselves um, with horse rugs and saddle blankets. But, yeah, if you can just bear with us for this one, um, it's just a little bit echoey. Sorry about that. All right, Tom, so I want to start with you. Can you tell me a bit about how you got to be where you are today? Yeah, well, I suppose I grew up on a beef cattle farm down in Kingaroy with mum, dad and four other brothers. And, yeah, we had a lot of fun down there. I think we grew a lot of peanuts and corn and sorghum and things like that, Angus cattle. And yeah, I think as about yeah, grade six, I think I'd seen on ABC Landline actually about 
the Northern Territory and the wide open spaces and, yeah, just got into my system and I really wanted to get up here and explore it. Uh, I'd seen all the horses and the cattle on the TV and, yeah, I, I packed my bags, <laughs> I think after year seven, and tried to leave home and head north. And mum and dad tracked me down and told me to pull my head in and get back to work. Um, and, yeah, my older brother was very switched on academically, James, and he really wanted to go to boarding school down in Brisbane with a few mates. And mum and dad couldn't afford to send any of us to boarding school. So he tried out for this academic scholarship and he just nailed it. And he got all his fees covered for five years. And then I tried to follow suit two years later and just failed dismally on this academic scholarship thing. But I was doing piano lessons and mum said, why don't you try out for the music scholarship? Because, you know, if you try it out there, there might be a chance you'd win that and you get half your fees covered. So I tried out and I think they felt sorry for me and I managed to win the music one. So I had to play the trumpet, the trombone, piano and a few other instruments there I didn't really tell my mates about because back then it wasn't that cool. Um, but, you know, we played a bit of soccer and footy and cricket. And after year 12, I said, right, I'm going to the Territory. And mum and dad said, no, no, we paid for half your fees. So you've got to get a trade or a degree. So I armed an art, eventually went to Gatton College near Toowoomba. Um, did a three-year degree in beef cattle genetic nutrition. And finally got that piece of paper, made a big frame for it and said, here, mum, go whack it on your wall. I'm going to the Territory. How did she feel about that? Oh, they were still pretty daunted, uh, you know, about the whole idea because, you know, as a kid leaving from down there to the Territory, it seems pretty remote and isolated. But, um, yeah, I'd always had my mind made up about it. And I was always, even as a kid, on school holidays, I was building horse arenas and breaking and training horses and working dogs down. I was always outside uh, mucking around animals. So, yeah, finally I, um, yeah, I caught the Greyhound bus up to Catherine and got a lift out to Top Springs with another um, young fella at the time and then it was too wet so we got a helicopter in to Mount Sanford and... Yeah, just went straight out into the stock camp uh, with about 10 other fellas there and, um, yeah, started mustering cattle and, yeah, just loved it. So for uh, those listening who aren't familiar with Mount Sanford, whereabouts is that? I think it's about 600 k's roughly south of Catherine. Mm-hmm. And at the time they had about 20,000 breed of Brahmin cattle on there. And, yeah, there was two stock camps. They had a really good horse uh, breeding program for Hatesbury Beef for Janet Holmes Court. And I think Janet would have had about six or seven other cattle stations. So um, I really wanted to go to that station because at uni, um, I think it was Maureen Coulthard, who was the manageress of VRD, came down and did a speech about the Hatesbury group. And I found out that Mount Sanford was the, yeah, the, the hub of all the horses. So I really wanted to get in there and try to get amongst it, get it, get in with the horse training and things like that. So, um, yeah, after about a year in the stock camp, I got moved into breaking in horses with another fellow called Mark Noakes. And he's a great bloke. And yeah, we had a lot of fun. And, um, yeah, he taught me a lot of stuff as well. And yeah, he even taught me 
you know, he gave me the old guitar and he showed me a few chords and I began practicing this guitar uh, every lunchtime. We had an hour and at nighttime as well at the homestead there. So I began to songwrite on the cattle station. I'd never written a song before. And so working with Martin and the horses and uh, this old guitar, it was, um, yeah, it's a pretty fun time. So was that the first time that you started singing? Was that on the station? Yeah, yeah, I had a bit of a go. I wouldn't call it singing. <laughs> I'm still pretty dodgy. But um, I I suppose, yeah, I was on the back of a horse in the stock camp, um, you know, walking cattle away or mustering and um, had a lot of time to, to fill in. So these songs came into my head. I began to write them and put them in the, uh, you know, my top pocket as, as we were riding along. And... Yeah, I suppose the fellas, and after every day, they say, "Hey, Tom, what uh, what song have you written today?" And um, you know, they're pretty hard up for entertainment out there, just sitting around a campfire. So, yeah, but they were they were really good good fellas, and you know, that's where I began to write the uh, first two songs called "Smack Bang" and the "Windmill Song." Were based out at Mount Stanford, and um, eventually, after a few years, we put an album out and. And they went really well in the charts, which was pretty cool. So how do you go from being in a stock camp in the middle of nowhere to recording a CD? Yeah, that's a very good question. Well, I went from in the stock camp and then at the homestead there with Martin Oakes and practising these three chords to try to play the guitar. And I went to Kununara Rodeo and I didn't take the guitar with me, but a few of the blokes... Um, knew that I could sing a bit and so they had a few beers in them and they got me to jump up on the back of this truck. Uh, the band was playing but in between their breaks at the rodeo, they said, well, this fellow can half sing, get up and have a go. And so anyway, I eventually got up there. I didn't have any guitar. I had trying to sing my own song in front of this massive crowd and they could have easily booed me off because, you know, a lot were pretty tipsy and they're having a lot of fun and, you know, but I don't know, they just cheered and um, really backed me and, yeah, I really owe a lot to those people, you know, because after that I I um, entered a singing contest at Adelaide River and, you know, the winner of that would go to Tamworth to meet the big wigs in the country music world and I was lucky enough I think I was the only one in it, but I managed to win it, I think. No, there's a few others others in there. But I got to Tamworth and met this fellow called Garth Porter who was out of that band Sherbet back in the 70s. And I honestly didn't have much idea about the music or Sherbet or who Garth was, but he seemed like a good fella. And I found out that he records Lee Kernigan. And so, yeah, over the years we did um, two albums, Smack Bang and then Heat Wave. And I got to travel a lot and tour a lot with various country music artists all around the country. It was absolutely terrifying because <clears throat> I'd only ever been in the round yard with a horse or 10 horses a day. And, you know, I remember going out on the road with Sarah Stora and she said, look, Tom, it'll be fine. All you've got to do is sing four songs, okay, before I go on. I said, okay, no worries. So I remember at Tamworth, and there was about a 1,000 people in this big auditorium, and I sat down on a chair, and then I'm going, okay, this is going to be easy time. Let's just do it. 
sing four of my own original songs. No one's ever heard of me. Uh, I could barely play the guitar. So I was sitting there and I was trying to remember my words, play the guitar, remember where my fingers were going, smile and act like I was enjoying the moment. And, you know, at the end of those four songs, I remember just saying, look, I think that's it. I'm just going, home. this is ridiculous. There's too much pressure and way out of my depth. But anyway, <clears throat> we sold a fair few CDs that day, like a ridiculous amount. And yeah, um, gradually we just kept at it. And yeah, we've, um, things are ticking along. And, and somehow you ended up back in the territory though, breaking horses. Is that what you did <coughs> between music and, and when Catherine Outback experience started? Were you breaking horses full time or did you go back working on stations? Yeah, that's right. So I think I went out contract horse breaking. After I left Mount Sanford about 2003, I went out contract horse breaking through the Northern Territory. So every sort of three weeks, I'd break in 10 horses and move on to another cattle station. And I did it pretty much for about 10 years. And in between, I would shoot off and do a bit of a tour here and there and keep it all going. And then eventually, I think about 2010, I bought a block in Catherine or six Ks out of Catherine. And I just thought that instead of me travelling to all these cattle stations, hopefully we might be able to get the cattle station to send the horses into Catherine to get broken in and trained. And then I wouldn't have to travel as much because <clears throat> there's a good coffee club down the street. <laughs> I love my coffee. <laughs> but <clears throat> it seemed to work out pretty well. But initially I didn't. I just didn't come in and buy the place. My brother lived next door. Yeah. And at the time I said, listen, Pat, is there any chance I could rent out your old shed and set up portable panels in your mango plantation to see if the, the cattle stations would send the horses in? And um, he said, yep, no worries, we'll give it a crack. So I did that. And the neighbour had this 20 acres for sale and... My brother Pat said, Tom, are you going to, you know, that's for sale. Why don't you go and have a crack at that? I said, oh, look, it's too much money. I don't think I'd be able to do that. He said, well, if you don't have a go, I'm going to buy it. I said, heck, well, I'll go have a crack. So <laughs> I went and asked this bloke and he said, are you the bloke down in the mangoes with your generator and your lights going to about 3.30 in the morning? I said, yeah, sorry about the noise, mate, sorry. He said, no, no, well, if um, I said, look, I don't know if I'll have all the money. He said, well, I can see you've got a lot of motivation and drive. He said, I'm willing to do you a deal. And so he gave us a pretty good deal where we could uh, pay our X amount and a couple of years later we could pay the remainder off, which was just amazing. So, um, yeah, we started doing that. Yeah. Uh, all the cattle stations started sending horses in and breaking here. So um, it went really well. I did have a bit of a break, though, from the music to set all this up and things like that. and. Um, I did get married, uh, you know, I think it must have been about 2006 and had two kids and it was going really well till about 2000, I think, 11 when the live beef export ban hit. Then overnight, because I was breaking in over 100 horses a year and overnight I remember winning these cattle stations. They said, sorry, mate, we um, you haven't got any horses left. And that's absolutely devastating. And I remember uh, it put a massive pressure on our marriage. <clears throat> and eventually um, 
it fell through and my wife and two kids uh, left and headed down to Perth. And I could have, you know, I could have followed, but I just felt like, um, you know, there was something else here that I, that I, you know, the territory really inspired me with my songwriting and things like that and horses. And I just thought that if I could set up this tourism business called the Catherine Outback Experience, then, um, you know, we could start moving things on that way. So in all that time that you were breaking horses in here, were you still doing, you said you were just doing music in the off-seasons? Yeah, so I'd probably, yeah, I'd sort of juggle it a little bit because you have the Gimpy Muster Festival down there would be end of August, so there'd be three or four days where you'd have to stop your horses and shoot down there to do that. But I'd try to have it all timed so that um, any festivals... I could have horses going out, you know, early that week and then fly down to, you know, to, to do the actual festival and then fly back up so the next horses would come in on the early next week. They seem like two very different worlds. Did you find it was a bit of a juggling act, you know, being out here breaking horses and then jetting off somewhere and jumping on stage and and. It feels like you were equally passionate about both of them and I imagine that would have been quite hard to to make them both work and try and fulfil both of those passions when they took you so far apart. Yeah, they are completely different fields. There's um, the horse side of things. I remember I was often on remote cattle stations, um, often on yards, you know, working 10 horses a day, 30, 40 k's away from the homestead and... Yeah, it was very trying. There was a lot of tough horses out there and, you know, I'd get kicked or bitten and you'd have to analyse the heck out of the animal behaviour to see why the horse did that or, you know, I was analysing the horse's ears and eyes and nostrils and and every time I got hurt, I'd always be wondering why did I get hurt and what was the horse doing in that scenario and I was really big on that to try to, you know, for my own safety, I suppose. And then I was still thinking about songs as I worked horses and rode horses and that. A lot of tunes and melodies came to me while I was on the back of horses. But, yeah, when you're on stage and you've got a full band behind you and you've got a massive crowd out there and they're singing along to the words to your own songs that you've written, um, it is pretty inspiring and, and very humbling but you've still got to give it 110%. And even if you're only there for a couple of hours on stage, mentally it takes a massive drain out of you because you've, you know, you've got to sign all these CDs and talk to all these people afterwards, which you don't normally do on the cattle station. So mentally it's a massive hit. Do you find, um, I think, to get to go through everything you've gone through and to get where you are today shows you have like a great amount of resilience and grit do you attribute that to all the horses that you've worked with, you know, all the different personalities and characters and the lessons you've learnt from those horses to kind of how you've come to be who you are today and how you approach not just – I feel like working with horses teaches you a lot about working with animals but then working with people and dealing with things in life and problems and would you say that's had an impact or do you think about it or is it just something that's kind of in the – you don't really stop and think about it? Yeah, I haven't really stopped to think about – 
the animal side of it. I do go back to my parents. I remember as kids, mum and dad had this picture on the wall of two seagulls flying and underneath that it said they can because they think they can. You know, so every time things got tough and we had our homework or jobs to do outside, mum and dad would always point to the, the wall and say they can because they think they can. There's got to be a way around it. So figure it out, let's go. And it sort of cut all our excuses out and it really stuck with me. And then I think after year 12, um, in my uni holidays, I worked with another bloke called Gary Barber and he was a bloke just down the road, another amazingly optimistic, hard-working bloke, family man, and I knew him for a fair few years, but I got the opportunity to work for him for six months building goosenecks, uh, horse trailers. And, yeah, I was working on a massive one for Mark Buttsworth down there at Kingaroy, and you know, I'd rock up there every day and he'd be telling me stories and we'd, we'd be welding and cutting steel and he was another just such an inspiring person. And his main saying was, if the mind can, what was that now? <laughs> if the mind can conceive, the body will achieve. And so it really stuck with me. And when I bought this place in Catherine, the bloke had a little sign up and he said, Tom, the only stipulation here is when you buy this place, you've got to name your bar a certain name or someone after someone's inspired you. So I put a big sign up called the Gary Barber Bar. And I said, if the mind can conceive, the body will achieve. And everyone that comes here then looks at it. It's a massive big sign, three metres by a metre. And Gary Barber actually came up travelling through a year or two ago and he was absolutely stunned. He's about 50, great bloke and extremely humble. And he told me, what are you doing with that? What's that sign about, mate? And he didn't click that it was for him. I said, no, you've... You're the bloke that inspired me the most, apart from my parents, to um, have a crack. And, yeah, it just means the world to me. You probably didn't realise it, but, and, um, you know, whether you're dealing with horses or dogs or people, it's it's a great reflection of your true self. So I think you've got to really, you know, be up front and, you know, treat them how you want to be treated. So it's great that... uh, sitting now in the bar where everyone can see it. Yeah, that's great. I kind of wish I'd gone to the bar now. <laughs> I'll take you out. Yeah. yeah. So when when the ban happened and the horse business sort of dried up, um, I'm guessing you like you lent on those kind of those influences in your early life that you can't imagine what kind of how tough it was. Um, I mean everyone had a tough time but to to figure out what am I gonna do, how am I gonna stay up here and make it a goal of it and to get to where you are today, how did you start start from it all drying up and being in that situation to sort of getting to where you are now? Yeah, that was pretty tough. Um, so initially, yeah, I was pretty gutted and, and a bit numb about everything. But I think straight away, you know, everyone's saying, Tom, just leave town and head down to Perth and, you know, start over down there. But I don't know, there's something here that um, – has really got a hold of me and I just started going, no, there's other ways we can make it around this, okay? I've 
I always thought that Catherine was a bit of a hub and for, you know, mum and dad had a farm stay for 25 years and, you know, people would come there to go horse riding and uh, seeing the working dogs and horses and things, <clears throat> milking the cow, but they were off the highway a little. So they missed out on a lot of big buses and things like that. So I just thought that maybe if I was could base myself in Catherine to do this tourism, then people coming up from, you know, down south, they've got to go through Catherine to Darwin or through Catherine to Kununurra, and the other people up the west coast would be coming through Kununurra to Catherine to go to Darwin. So I thought it'd be a unique hub to start the tourism business. <clears throat> but I suppose at the time it was a really tough time, so I had no income and... Um, so I started shoeing horses for people around town. I started up horse riding lessons for kids, just trying to think outside the box. And I started the Catherine Outback show up doing three shows a week. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday was the Catherine Outback shows. And one person would come or two people, often no one. And all my mates would just pay me out and say, Tom, what are you doing? You train horses. What are you going into this tourism for? It's never going to work. And on the Tuesday and Thursday afternoons and all day Saturday, I started up horse riding lessons for anyone who wanted it. So I was doing kids, adults, um, and during the day I was shoeing. I was shoeing, so I had a fair few horses all around town and out a bit. So I was, I was pretty flat out. And I think, yeah, I... Oh, sorry, and I was also singing three, three or four nights a week as well at the caravan parks. So I thought <clears throat> any money, any income stream I could do, I just had a crack at. And I had been shooing a lot with all the horses, so I knew my way around that. And I was singing, so that helped a little. And I'd done a lot of horse riding for mum and dad back there with kids and taking people on horse rides, so that worked in well. So I just started it up and then... For the Catherine Outback shows, I drew these big signs with Nico pens on a bit of tin and I took them 30 k's out of town and I whacked steel posts in <coughs> and to advertise Catherine Outback experience because I wasn't really savvy with all the social media back then. And after a week or two, the council told me to take it down. And I said, oh, yeah, no worries, I'll do that. But I didn't get round to it for another two weeks. <laughs> and then they said, Tom, you've got to go take it down. I said, no worries, sorry. So I went out and I took it out another 50K <laughs> each way uh, just to get out from town, <clears throat> just to let people know that I was there. I got brochures made up. Yeah, so I began to take these brochures of the show to the caravan parks during lunchtime and I'd walk the caravan parks talking to you know, all the travellers coming through, trying to get them to come to my show. And, um, you know, that was hard going, going face-to-face with people, trying to give your own show a plug, you know. It's very daunting. And then when I was singing at, um, you know, the Big Four Cal- um, Holiday Park. What is it now? The Catherine Holiday Park. Yeah, down there. I was singing three or four nights a week and I'd give my show a plug after a few songs and try to get people to come to the show. And I started off underneath a tree, a big shady tree down here. 
on the place. And I had like two dogs and a horse and a guitar. I could barely play it. And it's, um, it was really tough going, but I just kept at it and at it and just kept on grinding away. And, um, yeah, it's quite humbling to now, you know, see the people coming through and the kids wanting to hear my music and stuff like that. It's um, a lot of hard rows and, you know, we don't really talk about it. But, yeah, for me to see what, you know, if you persist at something and give it a good red-hot go, that anything's possible you can if you really think you can. And the show today, I guess the whole property and the way it's developed is a million miles away from where you first started. And you started out on your own. It was a solo effort. But today it's very much a team effort with your wife, Annabelle. How did Annabelle come to be up here? That's a very good question. <laughs> I can see Annabelle looking at Tom. <laughs> we'll, let, we'll let Tom go first. I think. You want my version? Yeah. I'll give you my version. So my kids were down south. And so one weekend I travelled down there, flew down there, to um, see them, and yeah, I got in a bit of a, a bit of a pickle down there. I didn't really know my way around south of Perth, and I had to hitchhike for the first time in my life. And I had a saddlebag over one shoulder and a clothes bag over the other, walking down the southwest highway. Never hitchhiked ever, and it was very daunting. You know, I was walking along in my cowboy hat and boots, people yelling out the windows. Hillbilly and all this stuff. What are you doing? I can't really swear here, can I? But it was really daunting. And after about four or five hours, this old guy came along in an old farm ute and pulled over and um, offered me a lift back to his farm. He asked me who I was. And um, he was a really good fella. And, you know, I helped him out with a few horses and cows and things like that. And um, later that night, this girl rocked up from the city of Perth, all done up in her office gear and looked pretty fancy and um, turned out to be his daughter, Annabelle. Yeah, we sort of, we're heading to a camp draft, you know. I said, look, if you're going to the camp, I'd love to come. I've still got three days before my plane flies out. I'll come and I'll warm your horses up, shoo them, do whatever you need, just to say thanks for having me and picking me up. <clears throat> and so we went there and I got to know Lee and Annabelle yeah, after after that, Annabelle started stalking me and relentlessly. <laughs> no, she. Uh, we kept in touch for about twelve months, and eventually, I convinced her to come to Catherine and check it all out. You know, and I told her all about what I was doing and things like that, and she just seemed really interested in the business side of things. You know, as well as me. You know, you, you ask people questions and. And they are, they're very interested in them and they ask you questions back. It's got a, it's really had a really cool vibe about it. So, and it was a really hard time for me. Like, I was very cautious, you know, going into another relationship or anything like this. So, um, yeah, but, you know, she's just been absolutely phenomenal. Is I'd often wake up three in the morning, three thirty to go out riding horses and she'd be there awake typing away on a laptop, you know. But when we first came up, uh, I had two houses on the place and I was cash-strapped, still am, 
but I'd rented out both those houses. I was living in a four by four room in the shed, had aircon, but um, she came up I think about March. But the humidity it was like one hundred percent humidity. There was frogs and snakes, and you know, um, I just thought, yeah, cane toads. That's right. She got these allergies from cane. We couldn't work it out, but she got all like hay fever symptoms. Yeah. For like right. a few weeks. And I was going, what are you doing? I get really bad hay fever. But her eyes were all puffed up and, um, yeah, it looked like a big bullfrog. So. <laughs> <laughs> no, she <laughs> But her eyes were, you know, it was all like hay fever stuff. And then um, we got into the cane turds. Had a bit of a like a little... Culling program there, and after that, she, she came really good, you know. So, but I thought with the small room, the humidity, the cane toads, I thought she would just pack the bags and go home. But she's a little bit stubborn, <laughs> in a good way, and she stuck at it, and eventually moved into this old uh, granny flat that I was renting out after about eight months, and then. It's been about three years, hasn't it? And this year we've moved into the... Four, honey. Four, is it? Mm. That we've had to move into this house, the big house? Oh, yeah, three. Three three years. years. We waited. We couldn't just move into the big area. Yeah. Um, You made me do my time. Yeah. I had to to check her out. Make sure she was, you know. But we needed the rent from the big house to help out as well, to help supplement. So um, I was still breaking in a lot of horses, but since Annabelle's been on board, she's been... Unbelievable in helping the business and me, and I think we complement ourselves really well. Each other. <laughs> Each other. <laughs> it's it's important to have your own back and complement yourself, yeah. though. Yeah. So I think I think it's pretty cool, and I never ever thought that you know all all the dreams like she keeps often asking, "Is this what you envisaged?" You know, when we're talking on the phone, you told me, you know, how many people were coming and this is going to happen. You're going to get an indoor arena and all these things have now come true or they are here mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's quite surreal, you know. It's, I've got to keep pinching myself and every, ever since I was a little kid, I wanted an indoor arena to train horses in and to be able to get that through this crazy idea with, Catherine Outback experience, it's um, you walk down there every morning and you just go, man, how cool is this? So, mm, Annabelle's giving me a look. <laughs> I feel like it's time to hear Annabelle's version well, of she, this. She's trying to it all out now. So. Yeah, so that's, that's version one. Now we're just yeah. going to go straight to the truth of what actually yeah. happened. Oh, the terrifying thing about Tom, though, talking of having dreams and things, is that anything he says he's going to do. He does. I have to work out how to make it happen. And I quite often am going, okay, yep, that's a good, you know, medium to long term, three to ten years perhaps time frame, but it seems to happen a lot quicker. Um, so everything happens very quickly. But it happens. Mm-hmm. And he does it. seems to do it okay. seems to do it well. So, But it's pretty scary when he comes and he's like, I've had an idea. And I go, oh, gosh, what now? And is this where you thought you'd be when you rocked up back home that day and there was this stranger in your, in your kitchen? No, absolutely not. So 
at that stage in my life, I was living in Perth, uh, working in the corporate world as an urban planner for the private sector. Uh, my days were spent working in project teams with architects and engineers and surveyors, hydrologists, developers, landscapers, arguing about drainage, hydrology and environment and trees. And, um, yeah, I had no idea. I hadn't even thought about the territory as a possibility. Um, but I had actually pulled a sickie plan, planned it all out. And had intended to pull a sickie the next day because I wanted to go to this particular camp draft, main up camp draft. It's my favourite draft down there, aside from our own. And um, yeah, I got home that evening and it had been a quite an interesting day at work, actually. It's one I won't ever forget. Um, but that's a whole other story. And uh, it meant a few bottles of wine were necessary that <laughs> evening to relay the adventures of that day to my mum and dad, who found it very entertaining given the new people involved as it was a local planning issue in a small country town. <laughs> um, but I was surprised to sort of walk in there and find a cowboy in a black hat sitting at the end of our table, particularly as uh, mum and dad had always warned us girls about cowboys in black hats. <laughs> we weren't to go near them. But you did, we didn't really that night. No. Nah, we, like, we didn't hit it off or anything like that. No, like, you, you were really quiet, a bit sheepish. I just hitchhiked. <laughs> I don't even know where I was. Just threw his dignity away on the side of the highway. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I mean, we could, I, oh, you could tell he was a nice guy, but I didn't, didn't think anything of it. Um, and then we had about three and a half hours in the truck, myself sitting between Tom and Dad, quite squishy. Uh, that was pretty entertaining. Uh, and then a weekend away camp drafting and I think I was I was your little wing lady <laughs> covering oh. him, covering him of uh, many people coming up. And, uh, hey, Tom Gurdon, how you going, right. mate? Tom's going, who's that? Who's that? Oh, that's such and such. You would have met him at this draft and this year and this is, where he's from and what he does. And he's like, oh, how you going, mate? How's the farm in Maroona going? Or how's the uh, dairy cows going down in Boyanup? Or <laughs> And they're going, oh, wow, he remembers this. <laughs> no, he doesn't. That was pretty good, though. He did an amazing job. We had a little sister. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, yeah, it was, we just, I don't know, just became friends. And, and it was, at, like, correct, Tom said, it was a good year um, before I took the plunge. and So was that just a year of phone calls and messages, yeah. not actually? <laughs> we met, literally it. met him in person once and then was like, yeah, I'll jump on a plane. Yeah, there were a few little trips, but we kept it under wraps for quite some time. I actually went to the extent of saving him as in my phone as Curtis the engineer because <laughs> I knew that as soon as you put engineer in there, people just shut down and they know it's a really broad word, a bit like an accountant when you say you're an accountant. Yeah. And people just go, yeah, righto, and they change the subject. So I saved him as courtesy engineer. I had a family wedding a few weeks after this particular camp draft and I just thought I can't have this person flushing up as Tom Curtin at a hen's party or a wedding or 
post-wedding celebrations. <laughs> I can't be explaining this one. So, but as soon as oh, courtesy engineer, yeah, right. Um, we'll leave that one with you, Annabelle. <laughs> but no, we. What did there was a few little trips you made down, and I went up to Adelaide River Camp Draft that year. Yeah, that's which right. Was fun, but I'd never been to um, never been to Catherine when I moved up here. Hopped on a a plane, packed up my gear, popped my car on a truck, didn't I? That's pretty brave when you think about it. Yeah, especially coming to Catherine. You just took my word for it, you know? Brave or naive? like Oh, it could be both. It was like so not me. I'm the most... Planner. I'm a planner, de-risker, straight lines type of person. But the way I thought about it, I went, you know what? I really don't have anything to lose. My work, I had it all worked out. My work had told me they'd take me back if it didn't work out. <laughs> I think they were hoping That's it would really work nice. out. Yeah. They actually, they actually, and my backup plan to that was um, they wanted me to work for them um, remotely. So, you know, it, it was all there. If, if I didn't have enough work here, I'd be working remotely for them. So I still had an income. If it didn't work out here, I'd just go back to Perth. And I had my job back. So I didn't have a lot to lose, really. Yeah, that's a pretty sweet deal. Yeah. Um, and the only thing that I would have lost out on is not knowing if it might have worked. So it was a bit of a no-brainer in the end. Um, but he did forget to mention we would be living in a 4 by 4 room in the shed uh, <laughs> that doubled as my office by day. I think I actually went to your house in South Perth once. Um I can't remember the name of the suburb. I can picture where it is. Yeah, that's it. And it was quite nice. So now I've driven past and I've walked past the shed and I've seen, I thought it was impressive though. I thought that was where you still lived when I was trying to find you the other day. And I looked and I was like, oh, that's a pretty nice room. I've moved up. Yeah. But this is very nice where we are now. So you definitely have. Down well. Yeah. And here we are today. And here we are. So... I think when I arrived and Tom gave me, I hadn't seen a show. I got to see the first show and Tom's like, oh, just pop a towel, that towel over there on that table and just pop a few CDs out. And he's pulled out this brown faded <laughs> towel full of holes and just popped it on there as if it's his tablecloth. Okay. I don't know if you were blowing your eyes or what you were doing. It was absolutely hideous. And I've gone, Tom, what are you, what are you doing? <laughs> but that was, it was, it's good. It's Quite unreal to think back how far we have come yeah. in such a short time, I suppose. Um, so when when did Catherine Outback experience start? Would it have been 2011 or 2012? 2013. 2013. 1st of okay. July 2013. So we're in our sixth season now. Um, that is yeah. pretty monumental because these days you've got now an indoor arena, grandstands, you go as far as I feel like the difference between – here and other places I've been is the, the attention to detail. So when guests come, they get cold towels because it's a hot environment and people aren't generally acclimatized and you have refreshments for them. You bring out water during the show so they don't have to leave the show. There's all these things like it's, it's a very, it's not just that you've got the big infrastructure and the more elements to the show. It's all the attention to detail as well. Yeah, I think, um, it's taken a lot of trial and error on our behalf, but I think something we've learned is that it's more about 
the small things, the detail, but the stories as well. Mm-hmm. So um, I think anyone can can get up there and sing a song or um, share, I guess, what they're doing with a horse or a dog, provided they know what they're doing. But it seems to be the stories that our audiences really fall in love with and the people. And we've learned a lot about that in recent years, I think. So that that is also something about this show, which I think I've seen five times now between last year and this year, is that it's 100% authentic. And somebody I was speaking to earlier today um, when I asked, said, we're going to do this podcast, what do you want to know? And rather than actually giving me ideas of questions to ask, I just got some feedback was that this show is so authentic and we're so lucky to have someone like Tom doing this show for our industry because he's actually been there and done that, everything that's in the show. And, yeah, you've got the story. Because of that, you've got the stories to bring into it. It's a different context and it's very genuine and organic. Yes. And I think people can actually identify with that and realise that they are getting the real deal and it's not just some showman trying to put on an outback show like you actually are in the outback and this is – yeah, it's really important to us um, that it stays that way as well. Like, it, we don't ever want it to be the flashing lights and fancy production set um, type of show. We want it. We're actually quite happy for things to go wrong in the show because it's real. And and I I've, I sort of often compare it to um, when you see a um, magician and, and and he comes to something and he does mus- uh, does his um, magic tricks and that's great and it's exciting you go wow how did you do that but I always feel a little bit empty um, when when you can't when they leave and they don't actually give the secrets away yeah. and I actually feel like it would be really cool if if they did the trick and then went okay well this is how I actually did it um, and I think that's I think people really feel like they're getting something extra when they come to our show because we're telling them and showing them exactly what we're doing and how we're achieving that with the horses and the dogs um, and even some of the quirky things. Uh, and, they, yeah, a lot of them sort of say, look, it was really entertaining, but it was also really educational. And I'm not a horse person or a dog person, but I love finding out what happens in that situation. And I think the most, um, I guess, the best feeling for me is when someone from the land actually says, look, I'm from the land, I've grown up with horses and dogs and cattle, but I really loved this show and loved what you guys are doing. And that means a lot. Someone from the industry just takes it to the next level for me. I think it adds an extra element onto being a live show because there are other live shows with animals and people in it, but because they're so rehearsed and refined, it all goes, you know, according to plan. But here when, you know, one of the dogs maybe – you know, and it's not often, but you know, they might do something or, or the horse yesterday, it was quite a young horse. And, um, you explain to the audience, all right, we have a situation right now. And this is how I'm, you're walking them through it in live time. It's a real experience for them. It's not just come out. I mean, I always say like one time I saw Beyonce and it was just so unfulfilling because she just came out with like high path and just did her thing and walked away. And I was like, I saw her, she was there. It was live, but it wasn't a thing or as with this show they know what they get today is not what the audience gets tomorrow i mean there is that consistency between all the shows but there is you know that what you get on your day is special to that day it's not a, a generic you can turn up any day and get the same experience yeah 100%. Really 
And funnily enough, you should say that because today's show, uh, one of our team members actually did Roman writing for the first time. Oh, I can't believe I missed that. <laughs> and Tom and I had never actually seen her do it ourselves because we spent a lot of time running around doing other things. And she sent us a message about half an hour before the show started and said, hey, guys, how would you feel about me doing this today? And we went, you know what? Knock your socks off. And it was really cool. That is really great. And, yeah, that, that would have been the first audience to see that. And first time Tom and I saw it. <laughs> I just spoke to her before, just before she went. I said, listen, have you done this, you know, you're right to do it safely? And yeah. she goes, well, I can never guarantee. I might fall off. I said, oh, that's all right. But how your horses go, yeah, no, I've done a fair bit. So, right, let's give it a crack. And, you know, the people loved it. Everything went to plan. Um, but, you know, it's just, you know, trying different things in, in different, you know, sometimes the dogs run a mark, sometimes we get bucked off, but, you know, people can see it, that it is real and, um, yeah, they get their little value for money here and there, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and it's just so authentic because you've got all the stories you can tell about and all the experience. And it's, I think the thing is, like, you can't put on a show like you put on and tell the stories you tell without having earned those experiences and you've, in your own ways, come having different backgrounds to get here, you've been through the hard yards to earn those experiences and to live those stories to be able to pull it together into the show and share that with people. Like I couldn't just rock up and start putting on a show tomorrow about certain things. Like you've got to more horse breaking because I haven't done the hard yards of breaking in a horse. I could put on a slightly different Slightly more entertaining, maybe. Well, depends yeah. on what we classify as. But even now, like I was saying with um, Brianna, yeah. like this year we've brought in Brianna, yeah. uh, a young girl from down south to help out with, and she's pretty handy with horses, so she's got a little segment in the show, got an Indigenous fella from Mornington Island, um, you know, so and he, he's starting to do the horse-breaking side, and I'm just, he's very shy, and so... I'm just training him up to, you know, different things. He first came about a month ago and uh, I said, listen, all you got to do is stand up in front of these people and just say three sentences, who you are, where you're from and what you want to do down the track. And he was shaking that badly, you know, there was pauses and I had to help him out from the sideline. And, you know, um, today he nearly did half hour working with a young horse all mic'd up I was still on the sideline chipping in here and there, but it's just a fascinating insight into Davin, his family, the culture over on Mornington Island with all the turtles and the spearfishing and things like that that I'm trying to get him to implement while he's, you know, concentrating on a horse. So the people, you know, the couple that come, the wife might be really interested in the horse starting side of things, but the husband might be bored as. So we've got to try to get his attention um, onto something else. So if we can tell a few jokes or stories of Davin's background to get keep the interest, then I think, you know, it's it's all about the, um, yeah, the attention to detail and, and really caring what the, I suppose, the guest is receiving. So for listeners who haven't had the opportunity to attend a show yet, and you do do them in Catherine and then we'll touch later on about the, the tours that you go on, down the western east coast, um, what can people expect when they come to a show? What do you actually cover? 
Well, I think in Catherine here, we do like a 20 to 30 minute horse breaking demo. Horse starting, honey. Or horse starting. For years, I've called it horse breaking. Um, but these days, everyone's, the terminology is going to horse starting. And so we get a young horse, um, or it could be a problem horse, but we usually use it in about five different shows. So first time trying to catch it. Some horses we might even be able to catch. Then we, some we can catch and saddle, uh, ride for the first time. Uh, another show might be people would rock up and it'd be getting its third ride or something like that. Um, then we've got a few trick horses we're working on, teaching to lie down and stand on mats and work at liberty. Yeah, liberty, pick up hats and things. And then we've got the working dog demo. We train a lot of working dogs for people, border collies and kelpies. Uh, again, we get given a lot of different dogs people don't like or get along with. So we get them for free, train them up, sell them to farmers all around the country to work sheep or cattle. And it's about the psychology we use on the horses and the dogs all in a kind, safe manner, you know. So you're working 10 or 15 dogs at once trying to round up goats or cattle and if it goes a bit pear-shaped, that's okay if dogs get excited and jump off here and there, but it's how we recover. You can't really lose your cool and start throwing stuff at the dogs and things, A, because um, there's a crowd, but B, because all these dogs have got different personalities and pain thresholds. And so if you start yelling and carrying on, then a lot of these timid dogs will just run out of the arena and they'll associate the arena with a really tough environment. So they won't want to come back in. So we've got to build up the confidence of each individual dog to get the best out of it. And it is quite comical in how these dogs um, think. And I, Sort of roughly, yeah. I sort of say, well, this dog I think is doing this because, you know, um, it's a bit of a rat bag or because it think it's a bit jealous of this other dog showing it up. And I give a running commentary of what I think's going on and um, people pick up. And then we also try to get, you know, ride a horse playing a guitar and stand up on a horse playing a guitar. And, but only because people came to the show and said, Tom, I reckon you should try this. Why don't you implement this in your show? And that's how it's all developed as people going, giving us ideas, um, betting us cartons of beer that we can't do it. Yeah. So then we just keep, keep that in the show. And, you know, again, we, you know, I've been bucked off five or six times trying to ride a horse around playing the guitar. You know, it's got a fright. And, you know, at least it's really nice, soft sand out there. Isn't it? <laughs> so the core components of the show is you've got the horse starting, the working dogs, and then your music as well. Um, and from what I've picked up is people, so there's the entertainment value, there's the, you know, educational opportunities, you know, people are learning things as well, but then infused throughout the entire performance are the stories and the yarn. So it's, it's sort of as if you're going to almost a bit of a clinic to learn stuff, but at the same time, it's like you're going to see, you know, not like a stand-up comedian, but, you know, when somebody comes and puts on a show and you go and you buy your tickets and sit down and, and they stand on stage and they, yeah, they keep you engaged and entertained for that period of time. So it's a great combination of both that you're getting the stories and the, the yarns, but you're also learning at the same time, but it's not like you're sitting down and being taught a lesson and then you're seeing these, what these people in front of you can achieve with these animals from the, the basics of starting a horse to getting your horse to roll out a swag and lay down and, Somehow, I still don't know how you do it, make him snore 
Like it's just yeah. legend is a legend. <laughs> I think he's got a few buttons under his chin. Yeah. But um, no, he's a good character. Yeah. yeah. So it's a great show. So in the show you do sing a few songs. So and I and earlier we touched on how in, you know, sort of the decade beforehand you'd be going between the horsework and trying to manage that that balance with maintaining a music career. And now it seems like you've got the the balance where you've been able to bring it all together. You get to sing in front of an audience and still write songs and do the work with the horses and dogs. And you've got now four CDs out, is it? You've released four yeah, albums? Got, no, three I've got albums. three albums and fourth one should be out later this year. Is that oh, – I'm, I'm thinking of the Dolly single. The Dolly single, which is the – I'm thinking of the four CDs on the table. Yeah. So three albums. Um, the most recent one being called Territory Time, where you won a couple of golden guitars. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I got a bit lucky there, I think. Um, no, I had a good mate, Luke O'Shea, travelled up here with his family um, and he wanted to stay a couple of days. He ended up staying about a week or two, so I had to put him to work, um, you know, feeding dogs and horses. But he's a great bloke and I had an idea about writing a song, a bit of an anthem for the top end. And we sat down one Sunday afternoon and we wrote this one called Never Never Land. And usually when we write a song, if it's a really good song and I sing it, it gives me goosebumps. And this particular song just kept on giving me goosebumps. And after a while, my mate said, Tom, you've got to do a film clip, you know, for this song just to show everyone what you're talking about. And, and now we didn't have much money. And so I rang a heap of mates all around the top end and just asked them if they could send in footage from the helicopters or their drones or iPhones of life in the bush up here. And they did that. So I roughly edited it together. Had another mate on Groot Island who'd worked for Channel 7. So he knew all about the computers and the quality of film and things. So I said, listen, any chance I could give you a carton of beer or two? if you could help me edit this together. And he did that, and then we ended it into the Golden Guitars down at Tamworth Country Music Festival and, yeah, somehow managed to win um, Heritage Song of the Year and Video Clip of the Year. And we're up against the likes of Lee Kernigan and Casey Chambers and things like that, you know. So, yeah, we were – I was at the back – we had to sing the song on the night. So Luke and I were at the back tuning our guitars and it came up on TV and I said, oh, look, Luke, they're, they're announcing it now. Look, this category's up. He said, oh, yeah, I wouldn't hold your breath, mate. Just tune your guitar quick. We're nearly on. And sure enough, they read out our name and we nearly dropped our guitars and we had to run on stage. We were, you know, running through black curtains and things like that to get on stage and we were panting and, we're just totally in shock. So, um, you know, it was just an amazing, amazing night. But more so, it's, um, I think, means so much to me because there's so many people that have helped me over the years with the music, the horses coming to my shows. It's, um, it's quite humbling. So the song is really for them, you know, and the hardworking never give up spirit which is quite evident up here. And so on this album, the third one, Territory Time, there's a whole, and, and from your early albums, like you, all your songs are really authentic. It's about life on the land, particularly life up here. 
And on the third album, you've got some fun songs and some more serious songs. And the song I want to talk about, just because I can, or just because I can ask you, is um, Where the Pindan Meets the Ocean, because that's my favourite song ever, and I play it all the time, especially I know where you wrote the song, or it's about a particular place, and I drive down that stretch of country quite often, and I always play it. So can you tell me, or tell our listeners a little bit about the backstory of that? And then I want everyone to go and pause this and go and find it on Spotify or iTunes, preferably, um, because it's amazing. It's I just feel like compared to all your other songs, it's just like it's just got a whole different tone and feel. Like it's a whole, yeah. it's just different, it's just and it's beautiful. amazing. It's just amazing. Yeah, it's I got goosebumps. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I get, I nearly cry when I sing this song. It's uh, it's pretty amazing for me. It's I met this lady called Janice. Uh, Bell. She was, I was at a camp draft, uh, south of Perth a couple of years ago and she's about 60 and I met her up at the camp and I was on a horse. She was on a horse, had a bit of a yarn and she just had this amazing aura about her, you know, and I just picked up this vibe and I kept asking questions. She's very down to earth, very humble. And eventually uh, I found out she had a cattle station about an hour south of Broome. So we got talking and uh, eventually she said, look, Tom, on your way back up to Catherine with your horse truck, you're more than welcome to drop in for a few days and spell your horses and things like that. So I took her up on the offer and I got up there a few weeks later and um, I didn't realise, but she's got about 10 k's of beach frontage. We drove in there, unloaded the horses and uh, cattle station and she also runs a caravan park called Barn Hill Station stay, I think it's called. And at the time, we were early in the season, so there, there weren't any tourists there yet. But um, had a look around. It's just amazing, amazing place. The whole vibe or the feel, it's just phenomenal. And later that night, she invited us in for dinner. And she was, you know, the whole house was made of mud bricks, had a tin roof with mud bricks and... Um, I said, oh, who made your house, Janice? And she said, oh, don't look too closely. I did. It's pretty dodgy, you know, and just looked amazing. Just looked like a builder made it. It's um, out of rammed red earth, a big, pretty big house, you know, and all open plan. And I said, what? What do you mean? She goes, oh, no, I settled here years ago. I was a single mother, had a couple of kids, and, um, you know, it was very tough going. I had to try to put a bore down but didn't have enough money for the bore and she was telling me all these troubles she had with the cattle and um, tough times and, you know, she started this, really had this idea about starting a caravan park. There's no social media. So she, you know, invited this caravan in one year. The next year there was two more caravans. It was about 30 years ago. And these days, you know, it's about 600 caravan site there now and she's still a hard worker and I said listen is there any chance I'd be able to write a song about your story and she said oh look if you want to I said why why here why did you want to settle here it's obviously a beautiful place and she she just simply said it's where the Pindan meets the ocean and I said what the heck is the Pindan and she said it's a red soil type it runs from the bitumen you know 9k's all the way to the beach frontage and it just drops away. You've got the white beach sand that runs into the ocean. So you've got all year-round access. 
And it's just, you know, that you sit out there and watch the sun go down. And I thought, man, that's a great line for a song where the pin down meets the ocean. And so, yeah, went back down south, teamed up with Garth Porter down in Sydney. And I said, listen, mate, we've um, got a half wrote the song back to Dar- uh, back to Catherine in the horse truck over the next few days. And then, um, yeah, I said, let's write this one. And, um, yeah, I'm really proud of it. I hope Janice likes it. <laughs> I'm sure she would because you guys went back last year and made a film clip for it, which people can see on Facebook, um, on your Facebook page, Tom mm-hmm. Curtin Music, and that's just spectacular. There's a lot of drone footage that shows the most, um, like, spectacular views. And But there's – was that the first time you'd been to Barnhill? That's not the only time you've been to Barnhill, though, is it? No, I think that was the first time I'd been, and I think it's my favourite place at the moment in Australia to visit. Yeah. If you ever get the chance, seriously. And I've been lucky enough to travel a lot of places, and there is so many great places in Australia, but Barnhill, you know, is just. And absolutely, all they have is um, they've got a few little cabins there, a lot of caravanners. They've got a little kiosk that overlooks the ocean. You know, you can go fishing and swimming and long walks along the beach, but it's just majestic. It's it's just an amazing place. And so I thought, I'm not sure with all the dates and times and things, that's a bit of a blur, but um, it might have been, you know, after Annabelle came up, it might have been another year or something, and we're down there for the wet season, um, touring around with the show, and I remember asking Annabelle's father if there was any chance I could marry his daughter, and I was just about to ask, we're out fencing, I was about to ask him, uh, but he picked up this big postal shovel, and I thought, hang on, I better just time this a bit right, so I just backed off and... Um, he waited for the right time. Then I asked him again when he had nothing in his hands, and he was a little bit sh- <laughs> he was a little bit shocked. But he said, "No, you know, go for it." And then I asked Annabelle's mother, Nikki. She's a legend. But I said, "Any chance, Nikki?" And um, yeah, she said, "Hell yeah, give it a crack." But I said, "Well, I know Annabelle is a really big planner, you know, and I could go and buy a ring, but she won't like it." So. Is there any chance I'd be able to borrow just an old ring from you and then that way I could use that ring, propose. If she doesn't like it, you know, if she says no, I can just post the ring back to you, you know, and it's all good. So anyway, I rang Janice and said, listen, I'm going to try to propose at Barn Hill uh, on the uh, in the red pin down overlooking the ocean. I want to do it just as the sun goes down. So we're driving the truck back up and I think we, you know, I was – holding my fingers up to the skyline to see, you know, I think a finger is supposed to be worth 15 minutes, you know, when you hold them together to see when the sun's going down over the ocean. And we are still about half an hour out, so of getting there and then unloading the horses and things like that. And I really wanted to get it done because the next day we had to get cracking again. So anyway, we got there and I was fumbling around and uh, I asked Janice, I said, is there any chance you could just hide um, an esky in a bit of the spin effects there with a few beers or champagne. And what I'll do is I'll hit her up to see if she wanted to get married. 
And then if I raise my hat, because they're probably about 400 metres away, if I raise my hat, that means yes, come on over. And um, but if you don't see the hat, don't come over, because that means no, she just rejected me. But anyway, we got there just in time on the four-wheeler and, um, yeah, got down one knee. And I think she was a bit taken aback, a bit shocked. What the hell are you doing, Tom, sort of thing. Annabelle, I feel like you want, you want to say something here. Uh, I shouldn't take away from a good story, but I did smell a bit of a rat <laughs> when Tom was putting a sunset before feeding his dogs. Did you think that that might be what's happening, though? And I was like, why wouldn't we just feed the dogs? We can see the sunset from here. And we it actually been the trip from hell. We, we'd hit floodwaters south oh, of Newman. That's right. I forgot about we'd that. We'd hit floodwaters. Uh, we'd spent the night when we were in Newman just, I don't even think we had dinner. We Nothing was dry. And we yeah. slept at the top of the, the cattle. cattle race, cattle ramp. It's the only dry spot there was. Got attacked by mozzies, I'm pretty certain. Luckily, luckily, I had the foresight to pack a mozzie net and a fan to sit under the mozzie net. <laughs> um, and then the following night, we only got us, oh, we broke down like three times, four times the next day because water had got into something in the truck. So that was fun. No phone reception. Halfway between Newman and Port Headland. I couldn't believe you didn't crack it. Like, I think I was just laughing. She kept it cool. I'm just going, this chick is cool. This is yeah. like marriage material right there. <laughs> then that night we had to pull up in Port Headland and because everything, they had such big floods the week before, again, everything was just saturated. Uh, I remember being on the floor of those stables in Headland and we just, just bugs and things everywhere. We had a little shower under a garden hose. Remember that? Yeah, and you were on a pallet. And we had a garden hose, that's right, to have a shower. Hope that, was, that no one came around the corner. That was pretty romantic. We had shapes for dinner that night, I remember. Again, the fan. <laughs> what kind of shapes did you have? Pizza? Cheese, cheese one. Just the how yellow box. I remember that. That's like, how long ago was that? Four years? It's two years ago, honey. Uh, Feels like <laughs> established. Tom's not good at math. Two years and one Annabelle month. is. <laughs> uh, and everybody. then, so then we finally, oh, that's right. Halfway between Headland and Broome, I get a phone call from the truck company who were deli- delivering my car, brand new car, to Catherine. And they were like, oh, something's come up. We got another job. So we actually dropped your car off. Wait for it. It fits right across the <laughs> No way. And oh. I was like, you what? And they've gone, yeah, yeah, we've just dropped it off in Fitzroy Crossing, so uh, perhaps you could pick it up there one day. No. And I'm going, yeah, I is, this, is, is this a joke? Like, That's a good 1,200Ks west someone's as well. Sweat, as, isn't up, right? And I'm like, you've, you've dropped it off like a good 1,200K short of the destination and I don't know, six, seven. 100Ks from where we currently are. And also not in the most secure, secure town. town. The track record is, yeah. is not great. <laughs> so, yeah, we pulled into Barn Hill, 
as the sun's going down and I'm thinking, right, horses off, dogs off, get them fed, get to bed, haven't had a good night's sleep, haven't had a good feed. And I'm trying to feed Tom's favourite dogs and he's going, honey, honey, now, honey, we've got to get on the motorbike. And I'm going, I'll just feed the dogs first. Why are we in such a rush? And then I went, oh, what's he up to? But anyway, we saw the sun setting. We yeah. did see Just in and time. And it was very romantic and he did very well. I was impressed. And they all came over for beers and champagne. That was good. Yeah. And my car was intact the next day when we got to Fitzroy Crossing. Fantastic. Yeah. You just took it back with you? Oh, my it along? Just poked along? It's quite <laughs> peaceful in the truck. <laughs> You'd have had a lot of thinking time. <laughs> And you would have had a lot of thinking time as well, driving, just Dancing. staring at your finger. Yeah. Dancing a lot in the car to keep myself awake <laughs> after those sleepless nights yeah. previous. Do you have any of Tom's CDs playing? That would have put you to sleep, I reckon. I was tommed out by then. <laughs> Do you yeah. ever get tommed out now? I mean, you must hear the songs. You hear the songs every day. You have them playing when the guests arrive. You hear them sing every day. Are you excited? i up next to it. <laughs> do you sing her to sleep or do you sing her as she wakes oh, up? Wake her up, yeah. No. <laughs> no. That's enough now, Tom. Enough from you. Oh. I have to know when. Oh, you did mention a new album. Yeah, that's what I was just about to ask. On the horizon, and I think I'm just about over it already. So you've heard all the songs several times, I'm guessing, several from the look times. on your face? But only the rough versions. Oh. So it's like version number one, version number two, and I think we're up to version number twenty. Yeah. No, well you've got it's like it's a long process. You know, you've got to write the song, and then you've got to play it on guitar, and then you know, sing it in the shower. Do you do that? Do you get to hear him sing in the shower? No, that's my quiet time <laughs> <laughs> when he's having a shower. <laughs> it's the only time. <laughs> I don't have to listen to it. <laughs> but for anyone else listening to this episode, we do highly recommend that you listen to the albums <laughs> and to the new album when it comes out. Would you? I'm really curious. So, having listened to all three of them and that last one, it just seems like you can tell there was a bit of time between the second and third one, wasn't there? And like you can see the growth and the development in the songs and the song. You've still got that authentic Australian experience, but the. Yeah, there's that development and almost like a graduation. Um, and you've still got the fun songs and there's the serious songs and, of course, where the pin down meets the ocean. What's this next album like? Is it is it still – is it kind of tracking along on that where you're getting some – Yeah, I think it's still tracking along the same. I've done some fun songs. Uh, I've done some serious ones for the farmers and things like that. Um yeah, I wrote one about the hitchhiking incident called The Hitchhiker. I'm glad you brought that up because I do just want to put in a disclaimer. So as we touched on earlier, Annabelle's dad picked her future husband up off the side of the road. This is not – this is an anomaly. This is not normal. And I just feel like after listening to this, there's going to be a lot of young ladies out there either picking up hitchhikers or really stressing on their dads that their dads need to do that. I think this is not going to – this is a it's one in a million. It's funny you say that. Um, about a year after 
Tom and I got together, my sister and dad were in the, in the car going past a similar spot when no. my dad had picked Tom up. And, and my dad turned to my sister and said, what do you reckon? And she said, Dad, you've got no daughters left. We're all married now. <laughs> I need to go hang out with your dad. I'm just thinking I've got a 1,500-kilometre drive tomorrow. I wonder how many hitchhikers I'm going to find. I don't think it's quite – again, I just the don't Territory think, and the Kimberley don't have a good track record. No, no. Well, I'm driving right past Wolf Creek, so well, it's probably, probably best not. Give it a crack. Um, but I can just imagine there's going to be so many people listening to this taking notes, like camp, on the way to Camp Draft, like pick up Hitchhiker, get Dad involved break, for safety. Break all the rules that your parents ever laid down about not dating black hats and not dating camp drafters. Do you still wear a black hat or is she kind of convinced you to wear a different colour? No, it got got too hot, I think. I kept on getting headaches because of the heat up here. Yeah. And then there was another lady that um, was like the manageress of Newcastle Waters and she had a few kids and a brown. And I know... I've known her pretty well over the years. I used to break in there back in 2003. I think she was there. And she hated black hats. And so I used to get the whiteout pens. When my black hats got old, I used to get the whiteout pens. And, uh, hi, Anna. I love you so much, Tom. <laughs> and I'd post them down to her. Yeah. And all her friends. Her mother actually came through here two days ago and she said nothing would get her more angry than receiving a black Tom Curtain a Cobra hat, an old battered hat in the mail to just go off. But um, no, but these days, yeah, I I wear sort of the palm leaf ones. Mm-hmm. They just seem a lot cooler on my head. And, um, yeah, they, they're amazing hats, those ones. And uh, well, I yeah. guess Annabelle broke the rule about dating a man in a black hat, but there's no rule about marrying a man in a black hat, so. Well, that's right. Yeah. That's right. But, um yeah, I told, I just think all, you know, all my mates call me Sir Don because they reckon I'm batting well above my average and, and I am, but you just got to keep batting away, don't you? Yeah. I don't know about that. I feel like you guys are a pretty awesome match, um, between like the, the things you've both achieved before you met each other and then what you've done together and what, and how you can do it together, I think shows that you're, that's the match for you is that what you've done so far. So, We've covered a lot tonight. Um, it's been a pretty, pretty incredible journey you've both been on. And can you just say that that saying for me again? There was the one that your parents had the picture on the wall, and then that the other horse trainer taught you. Because I feel like those are kind of like your ethos and like what's kind of been with you this whole time. And I just want to leave that in people's minds as we finish up. Yeah, well, the one on the wall at Mum and Dad's, and I've still got it on the wall. I saw the other day is um, the two seagulls, they can because they think they can. And then, yeah, if you ever come here, you're more than welcome to come and check out my bar uh, to anyone listening. Careful <laughs> and, what you say. You're going to yeah, get a lot of people asking now. <laughs> it's uh, called the Gary Barber Bar. And uh, he's got, a like, another bloke that is worthy of a yarn. He's done some incredible stuff, this fella. And um, he's living now down near the Twelve Apostles. But his phrase was, if the mind can conceive, the body will achieve. So, um, yeah, I think it's, you know, I've always been accused of being a big sky thinker, but 
I just think, you know, if you remain positive and get out of bed early and, and really give it a red hot go, it's um, anything's possible. If you'd like to keep up to date with Tom and Annabelle, you can follow them on social media. They have accounts on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter for Catherine Outback Experience and Tom Curtin's music. Of course, if you are passing through the Northern Territory, make sure you pull in and see the show. I've seen it about five times now. And as we said in the interview, every day is different. You get to see different horses, different dogs, different animals, different people. But it is the same good quality show every time. They also pull up for Smoko afterwards. So you can have a cuppa and a chat with Tom and Annabelle and ask them any of the questions that we didn't ask for answer in this podcast. If you can't wait that long, though, and you want to know more about them, head over to centralstation.net.au where you can find a number of stories that they've written over the past five years for our website. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend or leave us a review. It really helps other people find our podcast. You can find our website at centralstation.net.au where we have over 1,200 stories published from across Northern Australia all of our podcast episodes, a tourism directory for visiting an outback cattle station, and training and employment resources. We're on Facebook at Central Station, True Stories from Outback Australian Cattle Stations, and we're on Instagram at centralstation.net.au, and we're also on Twitter at Central Station 6. To discuss this episode with other listeners, head on over to our Facebook group, Central Station Podcast.